Pod Save America is sponsored by the Financial Times. Knowledge is confidence, and reading the Financial Times means you can do more than just catch up. You can stay one step ahead across topics such as politics, tech, business, and climate change with articles like The Unexpected Revival of America's Trade Unions or How China's Slowdown is Deepening Hong Kong's Existential Crisis. Visit ft.com slash podsave to read free articles and subscribe. That's ft.com slash podsave. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, Elise Hoag, and the host of Crooked Media's with friends like these, Anna Marie Cox. Also, be sure to check out Pod Save the World this week. Tommy has Ben Rhodes on to do a special emergency update on North Korea. And then Tommy talks to Bill Browder on how he became Putin's number one enemy. It's a great episode of Pod Save the World, so check it out. Also... I believe that Love It or Leave It's going to be at uh, Outside Lands up in San Francisco this weekend. And, and Dan, are you are you going to be a panelist? I will be a panelist. I'm pretty excited about this. I've been careful. Really it's very for this. it's very 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 tricky being a panelist on Love It or Leave It. I know. I've been mainlining Love It or Leave It. So I haven't even gotten to Pot Save the World yet because I've been listening to like a backlog of Love It or Leave It's recently to try to prepare for the various games. Yeah, I mean, there's the rant wheel. You're pretty good at you could you could go on quite a few rants. So that should be easy for you. Yeah, I'm hoping I'm hoping to get called on during the rant wheel. Really, the key is on Love or Leave It is to just um, just to speak up. Don't be afraid to speak up because otherwise, Love It will just talk the whole time. <laughs> so it's a lot like being on the Monday version of Pod Save America. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Again, it'll be a good test to see if Love It listens to this. Okay, so let's start with Dan. What you aptly titled on the outline: "The Song of Fire and Fury." Great Game of Thrones reference, Dan. I'm trying. <laughs> so on Monday, we said that um, that August is always quiet until something crazy and unexpected happens. And here we are, threatened by a madman with nukes and also Kim Jong-un. Um, <laughs> Did you workshop that all day? <laughs> just just this morning, just on my drive over here. All right, so this the current nuclear mishap began on Tuesday after the Washington Post reported that North Korea has successfully miniaturized a nuclear warhead so that it's small enough to fit on a ballistic missile. Uh, very dangerous. And I think some of this leaked out after, of course, the United States and the United Nations uh, passed very uh, stringent sanctions on North Korea, additional sanctions, passed the Security Council 15-0. So now we're told by the New York Times that this news about the, the uh, miniaturized nuclear warhead put our President Donald Trump in a confrontational mood, uh, was the description. <laughs> Right before he was scheduled to deliver a statement on the opioid crisis from his golf club in New Jersey, instead of conferring with his national security team about what he should say in response to the story, Trump decided to just wing it, which, you know, totally makes sense when you're talking about a global nuclear crisis. And he said the following, quote, North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. Whew. Uh so, Dan, let's start with, like, what's the normal process for a statement like that? I, let me say a couple things first. Please uh, do. One is, ever since this happened, I've been nervous about two things. One, dying. And two, yes. I have a real problem saying the word nuclear. And I say it wrong. I you say have, it like, like a, a George Bush, Bush and, thing? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and every time I do it, our... Our listeners very helpfully remind me of that fact, and so I've been practicing. So I'm still going to screw it up, and I may just use the term intercontinental ballistic missile with plutonium war tips uh, <laughs> instead of, of nuclear. Instead uh, of the N word, okay. 
So that <laughs> that's one. It, it, like that's one. Two to answer your question, um, the normal process for this would be the inner agency would get together. And that means is that all the relevant national security agencies would be coordinated by Russian bot enemy HR McMaster. It would be the Department of Defense, the CIA, the United, the ambassador of the UN, the State Department, uh, probably the director of national intelligence would get together and decide what the appropriate response is. It would be in very specific, careful language that would take into account all the various questions like what you know what does it mean if we say this and then Kim Jong Un does this what is the message is it sent to the chinese what is the message is sent to the rest of the world who who are listening to this how does it affect our various equities in the other things we're doing how does it affect our chance to get another un resolution and so it would be a, a laborious, annoying process, and, but a smart one. In our world, what that would have meant is we probably would have started the – the president would never have gone out to take questions from the press without some process to to have a recommended answer. Now, the president is not a, is not a robot. He could change his mind, and so he could overrule and say something different. But there would be a process to say, this is the consensus recommendation of your team of how to approach this, what you should say. And you would just be late. You wouldn't be like, well, I got this scheduled event that's basically a beard for my vacation, um, So, and I'm going to take a question, so I'm going to say whatever the hell I want. You would talk about it and think and think about it, be part of our process. And what I think is so alarming about this is we're supposed to all feel better because Trump has hired General Mattis and General Kelly. And I mean, maybe some people feel better about Rex Tillerson. I don't. But we have these people with experience who are supposed to be in this job, supposed to be the guardrails of government that keep Trump from driving the, the car off the cliff. And he doesn't even bother to listen to him in the single most important time you could possibly do that. And again, we should say that the process that you just outlined is not some typical Obama overcautious type of prog- uh, process, right? This is a process that is the same. You could ask people in the Bush administration what they would have done. I'm sure they would give you the same answer as you just gave about how the statement would be conceived. The same thing with the Clinton administration, the Reagan administration, the Carter administration, right? Like every single president would go through this kind of long process in consultation with all of your national security officials, consultations with allies, meetings drafts, sign-offs, all that kind of stuff. Every administration goes through this, except this one and this president, because he is I think, fucking nuts. Yes, I think they probably were in the middle of going through this process when they looked up from their desk and saw Trump on TV saying insane things and threatening nuclear Armageddon against the world. And we're like, oh shit, I guess I guess we should I guess that meeting happened an hour too late. So the next the next question you put on the outline is, are we all going to die? Which is, you know, maybe we should have started with that one. But um, I think uh, Max Fisher has a piece in the New York Times where he sort of, you know, tamps it down a little bit, the, the threat right now. So read that if you want to be a little less scared. Also, I thought, of course, go listen to Pod Save the World. I thought Tommy and Ben did a good job on this um, on yesterday's episode. But basically, Fisher's point is a couple of things to, that should worry us a little less. One, we've been threatening Korea for a long time. Remember, Bush called them, made them part of the axis of evil right before uh, we invaded Iraq. Also, th- there's been a lot of words so far 
but fewer actions from the Trump administration. Um, Fisher was saying, you know, start start worrying a little bit more if Trump moves thousands of troops from Guam to South Korea right now. It's all bluster and words, right? There's also the fact that no, neither side has the incentive to escalate right now. Um, North Korea knows that uh, this is a conflict they would lose. And the U.S. knows we want to avoid a conflict that would risk a nuclear attack on a major American city. At least, you know, I hope I hope Trump wants to avoid that. Have to believe that he does. So, you it know, could solve his, it, it's depending on which city it could solve his pop, a lot of his popular vote problem. That's that's true. That's true. I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure that's crossing his mind. So the North Korean response to this. In response, the North Korean military said, quote, sound dialogue is not possible with such a guy bereft of reason and only absolute force can work on him. He went on to blast Trump for playing golf while, quote, failing to grasp the ongoing grave situation. I mean, I have to say not a ton to disagree with in that statement. (laughs) Yeah, the DNC should hire that dude. He's pretty good. (laughs) The more frightening response from North Korea is uh, they said that they are drawing up plans to launch four intermediate range ballistic missiles into waters near Guam. That would be the closest ever strike by North Korea on American close to American territory. In response, we could try to shoot the missiles down while they were in the air. Who knows how that would work? But um, yeah, that's where we are right now. That is where we are. Pretty scary. Have you have you seen the cable news coverage of like all these reporters have gone to Guam and they're reporting from Guam? I've not. No. Gu- the people of Guam are chill as fuck. They're just like yeah. they're just going about their lives. They're like whatever. We're not worried about you know North Korea and here in the United States, everyone is you know buying an emergency pack and building a fallout shelter in their house right now. Good for them, I guess. Um, maybe they're not watching cable. Maybe that's why. I, I, <laughs> that's right. I have been a little calmer about this because I haven't turned on CNN or MSNBC or or Fox or anything. So I've just been trying to read Twitter, which, um, you know. Can, <laughs> oh, can, that's fucking healthy. <laughs> <laughs> which, well, Twitter is more like sardonic and people are like tweeting memes and making bunker jokes, you know, which is sort of dark. But um, it's, it's still better than the like chirons blasted across the screen and the maps and the explosions and the music that they all have on uh, on on cnn and the other places so you know i will i will defend cable news here and i will disclose once again my uh do you do you work in cable CNN, news oh, I didn't but sometimes cable goes too far no question sometimes the internet goes too far sometimes the, the press generally goes too far the difference between cable and the rest of the press is really not that big a difference Mm-hmm. But the United States, the North Korea has made a major advancement uh, in their ability to launch nuclear weapons against the United States. And the president of the United States said, if he threatens me again, you, I will launch fire and fury like the world has never seen, basically threatening a preemptive nuclear strike against North Korea. I think it's OK to, time to go. Be, it's time to take it to 10. Yeah, it's fine. Like you like the. Like the only reason I'm not taking it to ten is just to, if we were to live in a world where we accept our president is a complete buffoon, doesn't know what he's saying, and no one's actually going to act on his orders, which is possible. But if you just take at face value the United States, the president of the United States said that, I think it's okay to be pretty alarmist in your coverage. And then when you read that story, I, it's, I wish I could remember where I saw it, but I, I obviously saw it on Twitter. But about basically, there are no checks and balances on launching a nuclear strike. Yeah, it's no, just like the president just does it. No one can stop him. And so you're, Trump says that. You read that. You realize that he's pretty insane. You know, I, I'm okay. I'm okay with with the world being alarmed for a, for a period here. Uh, point taken. Point taken. I, I I hear what you're saying there. Um, well, let's talk about the administration response to uh, Jonathan J. wrote a piece 
in New York Magazine uh, that was pretty smart, which is like, and also also scary. It says, President Trump goes out and says all this kind of stuff, and then basically the rest of the administration is left to tell the world, like, you know, don't pay much attention to him. He's sort of nuts. <laughs> like, Tillerson goes out and delivers a statement saying Americans should rest easy and sleep well at night. We have to worry about this. Mattis basically releases a statement that redraws the red line that Trump drew when he said, if they threaten us again, he will rain down fire and fury. And Mattis said, no, um, no, it's going to be like if they attack or they do this. So um, and then, you know, administration sources are telling the Post and the Times, oh, Trump was in a bad mood. He was a little, uh, you know, he was a little, he was, in a, he was in an angry mood and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, as Chait said, basically amounts to them saying the president is a weird old man who wanders in front of microphones. Don't pay any attention to him. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a very sad state of affairs in the world, right? I mean, it's it's dangerous, number one. But number two... The fact that this is how the world is looking at the United States now, which is the president, the leader of the country goes and says something, and then they have to wait for the rest of the government to sort of clean it up. Um, like it, it damages our credibility and standing in the world in a way that I think is going to take quite a while to recover from um, if we can survive Trump. Yeah, the government seems to have had two responses to the things, the crazy things Trump says. One is been way out of their way to try to make the crazy thing he said seem true and like build policy around it. Like Trump says there were millions of illegal votes. And so we're going to start this voter suppression commission to, um, you know, to go prove him to be prove his bullshit thing to be true. And then the other one is he said this crazy thing and we're just going to not do it. Right. right? We're going to. And I mean, and I really this one is. I'm going to I'm really torn about this. And like in the short term, I'm glad that Trump's like, Trump tweets, commander in chief tweets, we are going to there should not be transgender troops in the military, basically saying he's going to kick them all out. And the military is just like, nope, not doing that. Right. And I'm glad because that's my policy preference. Right. I'm glad that they chose the thing I want. But. There is something alarming about the military just saying, we're going to do what we want to do. We don't care what you – we're going to call your bluff. And I think also in the North Korea case, this is the – I'm glad that they are just saying they're trying to fix Trump's error as opposed to deciding that because he said it, they have to prepare the missiles just in case Kim Jong-un pops off again. Um, but it's we're, this is a, a very – it's easy to get lost in how crazy, you know, with everything happening, but how crazy it is that the what the president says is not taken seriously by his own government. It's a, it's a very unique and alarming situation that we're in. And I think that a lot of these government officials are walking a tightrope. I think the military in sort of refusing to respond to Trump's tweet on kicking out transgendered Americans from the military, it, you know, if... But what they basically said was, well, if he issues a formal directive, right, like the presidents are supposed to and he goes through the process, you know, we we will follow his order, but we're not going to follow order by tweet. So none of them have completely resisted the commander in chief just yet. They're trying to find that space where they can sort of resist a little, but still within the bounds of what's legal 
in what their job is supposed to be. So it's sort of a tough, I think it's like a tough balancing act for a lot of these people, but they're trying to, I mean, I I'm not saying that because I feel sorry for a lot of them, like people like Madison Tillerson and, and you know, Gary Cohn and Dina Powell and all these people who were constantly told are saving us, uh, even though we can't see it. Um, they're choosing to do this. But they are trying to figure out where they can push him, where they can push back on Trump, and where they have to follow orders. And it's uh, can't be fun. Did you? I, I assume you're referring to that amazing story in Axios this morning about Ugh. the Coalition to Save America. I just, I can't. <laughs> it's like, it's really unbelievable. We it should all be. So much, we should all I'm be really thankful. Aff- we should all be thankful for all the people in the White House. Who are just trying? They we we can't. We don't know the extent of the bad decisions and the bad things they're stopping from happening. But we should be grateful that they're in there trying. I, mean, I just, it's really, it's, it's really. I I need to change my morning reading order because it really gets me way too worked up first thing in the morning. It's the first thing I read. It's the first thing that comes in. I appreciate, and it's tough because I appreciate the brevity and. Like the tech coverage they do and some other stuff is like really great. And but the morning lionizing of Gary Cohn and Dina Powell is just really too much for me. It reminds you that it's not just Trump that's the problem, but Washington and the Washington culture in general. Um, I always think about Leibovich's This Town when I read that. <laughs> and it's yeah, not I mean, just it it's not just the Trumpists. It's like the the journalist, politician, establishment vortex in Washington that, you know, tries to protect certain people. Let me say one more thing on Axios. There's yeah. a line in there that says Republican congressional leaders won't win any profiles and courage for standing up to Trump, but almost all could move against the president if special counsel Bob Mueller finds crimes. The president comes to radical instincts. Yeah, they could. I like yes, they technically could in the sense that they are sentient human beings, and that is an option. But, but I call bullshit on that. I there we have already like, the facts to date suggest that they will roll over in service of tax cuts for the wealthy, and so I very I found that part to be particularly irksome this morning. So we talked about the administration response. We talked about the uh, regular media, the traditional media response. Now let's talk about the MAGA media response. Um, Seb Gorka was running around all those crazy networks calling the U.S. not just a superpower, but a hyperpower, uh, drawing all kinds of comparisons to the Cuban Missile Crisis and said, we have to come together and support the commander-in-chief no matter what. This line was repeated by people all over Fox. Sean Hannity (laughs) tweeted, in light of dangerous North Korea threat, I'm stopping all petty political disagreements for at least next 12 hours. Oh, aren't we so lucky, Sean Hannity? Thank you for blessing us with that. Well, uh, he didn't because he t- he attacked Mitch McConnell five and a half did, hours later, did, which we're going to get to very shortly. <laughs> yeah, but you do you did have a lot some version of this. We have to get behind the commander in chief and help him as he's dealing with this, uh, and so there shouldn't be any disagreements and any criticisms whatsoever. I got in a fight with uh, former Bush Beach trader Mark Thiessen on Twitter, who 
just started like attacking Obama out of nowhere. I made some joke about Twitter on Twitter. He said, oh, Twitter's really useful in a nuclear crisis. And he was like, it was Obama's fault that we're in this North Korean mess right now. I was like, what? What are you talking about, dude? Fucking, they first tested a nuclear weapon when George Bush was president. We're like, I'm not blaming him for that, but like, what are you, what are you doing? And then, of course, he went with like, how about we all just agree to unite and support the president while he deals with this crisis? Like, okay, Mark Thiessen, when Obama was deciding to go into whether to uh, attack Syria and deal with ISIS, you were on Fox News making fun of him for golfing. So... It's just uh, well, Mark Thiessen's presence on the Washington Post edit op-ed page on a, on so a regular offensive. basis is proof that Jeff Bezos is not infallible. <laughs> Which is he's the second Bush speechwriter who has a column. Mar- Michael Gerson should have a column in Washington Post. Michael Gerson is a wonderful writer and a very reasonable person, even if I disagree with him on a lot of things. Uh, Mark Thiessen is just boof. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Mark, Michael Michael Gerson is a wonderful writer, and he we agree with him more than the average Republican. But I would Mark Mark Deason has terrible opinions, and he writes terribly. So I would be much happier. Like for as much as I don't like George Will, when he was on that page, he was at least an interesting writer. And so it's I it, I took me all of the caution I possibly could in self restraint to not jump in the middle of your Twitter fight with him. I get so worked up about it. I don't even know why I bother. But anyway, so this is the this is the uh, basically the message coming out from the the MAGA media here that they're going to uh, that no matter what Trump does, no matter what he says, no matter what action he takes, uh, they're going to support him, which is alarming because you know uh, that means that most Republican voters, probably over half of Republican voters, if not more, are also going to support him and. You know, this isn't back to should we go into Iraq or not? Are there weapons to mass destructions or not? We're talking about like first strike nuclear wars here. Like, I, it's just it's it's so scary and so irresponsible on behalf of this media. There is an argument to be made in times of national crisis that the country should come together. Right. Sometimes that argument is good. Sometimes it's bad. Well, I mean, it was one of the way, reasons we ended up in Iraq was this view that we had to, it was unpatriotic to question the president of the United States after 9-11. And Democrats, many of them, rolled over in that in that political environment. But if you're going to make that argument, if, if, the, if Trump has decided, I and his team has decided, I'm going to be a presidential, a wartime presidential leader, and I'm going to try to rally the country to my side, you probably don't want to go golfing in the middle of it. And two, you probably don't want to wake up in the morning and retweet an internet poll that that suggested that you were a better president than President Obama. So it's just like, <laughs> pick which one you want to do. Um, like, I am all for dissent in times like this. We should We should have that. But if you're going to take the path of calling for unity, you have to act like a unifier. You can't be the normal everyday asshole that you are. And do that at the same time. I think that's, I think that's right. I think that's, that's very correct. Let's talk about the home front a little bit. One piece of news that was completely sort of just disappeared uh, in all this North Korea, with for, for good reason, with all the North Korea crisis uh, stuff happening, is that the Washington Post reported yesterday that a week ago the FBI raided Paul Manafort's house. Uh, of course, to get a warrant to do that, you need probable cause for a crime. So that's the first time we've seen probable cause. Um, and Manafort was already handing over documents, which suggests that 
the raid happened because he wasn't being cooperative or they think he's trying to hide stuff. Um, and some people are saying that what they're what the FBI is trying to do is to maybe nail Manafort on an unrelated case in hopes that he'll cooperate on the Russian collusion case. Seems like a big deal. Not every day that a uh, president's former campaign manager's house gets raided by the FBI. I don't remember that happening to Pluff. <laughs> no, it did not happen to Pluff. Um, the, I mean, there's some interesting things about this. I guess two things. One, right after this happened, this could be coincidence, could be coincidence, but Trump went on a tweet storm against Andrew McCabe, who was the, at the time, and may still be the acting director of the FBI, uh, accusing him of partisan bias because his wife ran for uh, Congress and raised money from Democrats, including Terry McAuliffe, friend of the Clintons. But it was right after this raid happens, which some people have raised the question, did Trump know about this? And then this morning, Fox News uh, has an email that Trump's attorney, not crazy Jay Sekulow, but John Dowd, one of these new serious people that Trump uh, has hired to handle this, shows that Trump note the email between the Wall Street Journal reporter who wrote about this and Trump's attorney suggests that Trump's attorney knows a lot about the circumstances of this raid, the circumstances of the warrant and everything. So this Trump did not just learn about this yet yesterday or the day before when the rest of us learned about it. Yeah, they've known for some time and uh, they, they must be getting a little a little nervous over there. But it just it goes to show that like you know this this is not just some uh, fishing expedition without some kind of uh, larger goal or purpose or or uh, or evidence here. Um, you know you need you need probable cause to get a warrant like that. And so Mueller Mueller thinks he's got something. So uh, we shall see. And speaking of Trump lashing out on Twitter, started a little fight with Mitch McConnell uh, yesterday that has that has gone into today because of course Trump likes to drag these out into as many news cycles as possible. This whole thing started when McConnell was in Kentucky. He's giving a speech, and he and someone asked him about why they didn't pass health care. And he said, "You know, I think Trump had excessive expectations about how quickly things happen in the democratic process." So, as you noted earlier, this led Hannity to tweet to McConnell, "You are a weak, spineless leader who does not keep his word and need to retire." Very subtle. Uh, the next day, Dan Scavino, uh, former caddy turned uh, social media director in the White House, wrote uh, on Twitter, more excuses must have needed another four years in addition to seven to repeal and place Obamacare. Hashtag drain the swamp. And then hours after Scavino, we had Trump tweet something about Mitch McConnell. And then he tweeted again today. His tweet today was, can you believe that Mitch McConnell, who has screamed repeal and replace for seven years, couldn't get it done? Uh, what do we think about this, Dan? Who's who's right here? Who, whose side are we taking in this war? <laughs> Let me quote uh, New York Times reporter and one time Keeping 1600 uh, guest, Glenn Thrush. One could argue that Trump's strategy with Kim Jong-un is a lot more sane than his strategy with Mitch McConnell. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, Glenn. And here's more, the, that is perfect except for one thing. The use of the term strategy. There is no strategy here. There is just an angry man lashing yeah. out. Yeah, there's no strategy. I have to say, like, I, Trump Trump had a point, though, <laughs> saying after seven years, you couldn't figure out how to get it done. You had seven years to figure out how to replace, repeal and replace Obamacare. Like, he, you know, that's right. That's right. Also, 
I don't feel too bad for Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell has been such a fucking enabler of this president for so long. Yeah, he sort of deserves it, you know? Yeah, let me be very clear. I also do not feel bad for Mitch McConnell, ever. <laughs> I'll never feel bad for Mitch McConnell. Yeah, yeah that, is not, that is not my sentiment. Look, the, I mean, Trump is right in some ways and wrong in others. The ways in which he's right is Mitch McConnell and Republicans spent seven years on repeal and tried to handle replace over lunch. So no wonder <laughs> the plan failed. And, but... Trump is also president of the United States. He was a presidential candidate. And he, did he could nothing. have had a health care plan. Yeah. He could have done something as president to try to pass this because at the exact same time Mitch McConnell was engaging in a failed half-assed strategy to, re- to reimagine one-sixth of the economy, Trump was picking a fight with his own attorney general on Twitter. And so Trump never rallied for this bill. He never stumped for it. He didn't go out and give speeches. He didn't meet with doctors and nurses and insurance executives and pharmaceutical executives, like all the stakeholders. He didn't do anything to do that. He just sat it. He's basically he is as was as involved in the Republican effort to pass Trump Care as I was in the Warriors Championship run. I sat at <laughs> home. I tweeted about it. I was happy when they won and mad when they lost. But that's it. Dude, he confused health insurance for life insurance. He saw, he thought health insurance was what he saw on a commercial during Fox and Friends, which was twelve dollars a month, and then you build it up over time, and you get like he he did he didn't even know what health insurance was. That's why he wasn't helping. He didn't, he didn't know he, health insurance from life insurance, Medicare from Medicaid. I mean, yeah, it's it's so funny. I can who was it who wrote the piece about Trump falling for all of was it might have been Jonathan Chait all the senior scams on. Fox News commercials like his next plan yeah. is going to be to buy gold. You know, he's like he's calling up. He's calling the gold number in the middle of the night. And he's he's he's, he's buying a bunch of gold. There. He's asking him to ship it to the White House. He wants to make oh, sure man. he wants to make sure he's buying survival kits. He's he's getting all he's 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 ordering all those Alex Jones health supplements. It's just it's crazy. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure the uh, survival kits is, is a uh, ill-informed purchase. <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. We're gonna have we're gonna have Cricket Media branded survival kits for this. So so what are the, some of the consequences of Trump whacking McConnell here? I mean, theoretically, he probably needs McConnell for uh, for tax reform. He wants to keep the Republicans together on that. Again, they need to, you know, I don't know that it's going to be any easier than health care reform, but maybe a little bit easier because all Republicans love giving tax cuts to rich people, but still a challenge. He also sort of needs McConnell on board for if Mueller decides to recommend impeachment charges to Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, probably wants them on his side, though, as you pointed out, I'm sure uh, I'm sure they'll be there because God knows they're not going to stand up to him. It, Jake Sherman uh, from Politico Playbook tweeted, it's tough to overstate how bad of an idea it is for the president of Mitch McConnell's bad side. Yeah. And I understand that argument in theory. It may like Mitch McConnell is smart and he's mean, but it's not clear to me what he's going to do differently because Trump tweeted at him than he otherwise would. He's going to try to pass tax reform. Like Trump, I, Trump could accuse Mitch McConnell's dad of killing JFK, could attack the <laughs> looks of McConnell's wife. He's still going to do that. There is no red line that is going to stop McConnell from trying to pass Trump's agenda. Right. So I don't, and they already did the Russia sanctions. So it's not a good idea in the sense that it's wasted energy and time, right? Like you, Trump is, has a is under criminal investigation. 
Most of his family's under criminal investigation. The his White House staff is still in disarray, and his approval rating is swirling around the bottom of the toilet. And so it doesn't seem like this isn't just a wise thing to do. It's it would be, it'd be like in the middle of World War II, the U.S. Uh, picking invading the United Kingdom. Like it just makes no sense. But I don't know what the actual consequences are. Right. Just another thing for all of us to just you know smack our heads over. Okay, when we come back, we will be talking to Nerol Pro-Choice America's Elise Hoke. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. Pod Save America is brought to you by the Homegrown OKC podcast. There is way more to the Oklahoma City bombing than any of us knew. You can learn a ton about it on the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. It unpacks the tragic Oklahoma City bombing and how the event still ripples today and calls for political violence. Just days after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, America discovered the perpetrator was a right-wing extremist, Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today, as seen in the January 6th attack on our capital. Each episode of the Homegrown OKC podcast follows the story of McVeigh, a decorated Army veteran who became consumed with rage, went underground, and built a bomb that killed 168 people. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about a better understanding of the political environment in our country today. I think this is such an important story that tells you so much about radicalization, the far right in this country, the things that were simmering under the surface long before January 6th and some of the origins, which dates back to the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, It's an incredible podcast based on an amazing book. I highly recommend it. To listen to Homegrown OKC, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Ask Sherwin-Williams during the March Spring Sale, March 15th through the 25th, and get 35% off paints and stains with prices starting at $28.92. That means 35% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 35% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, Mm -hmm. more time for you. I. uh... You know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm-hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So, uh, what do you spend time doing in therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I okay, added therapy good, back good. to good. another time because uh, it turns out talking that's going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's really going to make things better for the team. <laughs> If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot PSA. On the pod today, we are very lucky to have the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America's Elise Hogue. Uh, Elise, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. Well, so we wanted to talk to you, uh, among other things, about this abortion litmus test controversy that's popped up over the last few weeks. So 
This started when the chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, Representative Ben Ray Lujan, said... There is not a litmus test for Democratic candidates. As we look at candidates across the country, you need to make sure you have candidates that fit the district that can win in these districts across America. What do you think he meant by that, and what's your response? Well, I mean, I think you'd have to ask him what he meant by that. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that what we've been dealing with is a lot of straw men that need to be dispensed if we're going to win this election cycle. And one of those is that Democrats are going to win if they run anti-choice candidates. Um, There is a very significant difference in the way people think about themselves as being pro-life. There are sort of personal opinions about what they would do in their own personal life and um, being anti-choice, which means that you're going to legislate your own personal ideology on your constituents. The anti-choice position is always a losing one. And guess what? Pro-life people have not only been welcome in the Democratic Party, but have been in the Democratic Party forever and without a problem since 1980, which is the first year that abortion rights was part of the um, Democratic Party platform. So this is kind of much ado about nothing. There is absolutely seven in ten Americans identify as being in support of legal access to abortion. It's true in red states. It's true in blue states. It's true that a majority of rank-and-file Republicans support legal access to abortion, and a plurality of pro-life individuals say they don't want the government making that decision. So if you're talking about running candidates that match their district, this is not a challenge for the Democrats to win the necessary consensus to put them over the margin of victory in elections. And in fact, they're going to alienate more voters um, who actually are super alarmed about what's going on in the country right now by telegraphing that they're giving ground on them than they stand to gain. It's an interesting distinction that you have between someone who may be have a certain view in their personal life, but not want to impose it on others and people who have, who may, you know, would vote in a certain way if they got to Congress or wherever else. I guess the question I would have for you is, in a hypothetical situation where the voters of a district, in, you know, Montana, North Dakota, whatever, you know, one of these states that we might have a shot of winning, the Democratic primary voters picked a candidate who was the sort of candidate that you've been concerned about, about the DCCC funding, they picked it, and it was a choice then between a Republican or this Democrat. Is it your view that the DCCC should not support that person? Um, You know, I think that is also a hypothetical that's not useful dealing with right now. Right now, the Democrats should be focused on finding the best candidates in every single district that reflect the core values of Democrats and swing voters, of which this is one. I think at the end of every single election cycle, Dan, we see candidates who fall short on Democratic Party principles in every arena. I happen to be talking to you from Colorado. Colorado is an 83% pro-choice state. Democrats running in Colorado have a harder time defending the Democratic Party position on gun rights than they do on choice. And yet we're not actually talking about gun rights in this conversation this far out of the 2018 cycle. And so I think what we need to be focused on is saying we're going to find candidates that are the best in every single district. Every cycle, we're always going to have a handful that fall short of our values, be it on climate change, gun safety, and singling out any one issue right now is not worth the message that it sends to the core constituency, the base of the Democratic Party, that are women who need to know that Democrats have our backs right now. 
Yeah, you said it was much ado about nothing, and it, it got me thinking. Like, part of this controversy seems to be partly media driven and partly driven by like sort of silly, not very sharp answers from the D trip chairman on this. <laughs> you know, like I don't know because I, I kept reading his statement and I was like, I can't tell if he's saying like like I obviously don't expect the D trip to go around funding in primaries because they don't really fund in primaries anyway, like pro life candidates, right? I was wondering if it was what Dan was saying, which is, say you get to the point in a general election where you have, you know, an anti-choice Democrat and an anti-choice Republican, but the anti-choice Democrats liberal on a whole bunch of other issues and maybe even more liberal on choice or more, you know, more pro-choice than the Republican, then as Democrats, don't we want to support that candidate to make sure the Republican gets in, even though that candidate's not our best choice? Yeah, and look, I think there is no doubt we have a number of dynamics at play right here. I think um, last weekend Dave Weigel published a piece in the Washington Post that basically was like, I'm a reporter, you guys have a media problem, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so the there is thing. no yeah. doubt that um, putting a little more thought in how these answers come out of the mouths of Democratic leaders right now would go a very, very long way. I think the fact that they haven't actually invested the time to think about how to answer these questions strategically and do some basic media training that, you know, Weigel was saying, pivot, guys, pivot, you know. Um, uh, That's something to pay attention to, especially at a time where not only is your base activated around women's rights specifically, but also a Priorities USA poll showed that the drop-off voters that we need to win in 2018 for women, the two issues driving them to the polls in 2018 are health care and abortion rights. So the Democrats need these women to win, and these women need to know the Democrats have their backs. So I think you've got a media training problem. Um, But I also think that um, there is absolutely no doubt that the GOP loves this story. Right. And the reason that they love this story, I mean, they want a Dems and Disraeli story, of course they do. But the reason they love this story is because they know if they cleave women... From, or even not even cleave women from the Democratic Party, but even dampen the enthusiasm of the largely female base to make phone calls to knock on the doors, that that goes disproportionately to a GOP victory in 2018. So they're certainly stroking the fires. I think, you know, the challenge that I have is when people say, so you know all that, so why don't you just pipe down, right? Women love to be told to pipe down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer to that is, A, I have a job to do, I have members to represent, and B, we're actually trying to help the Democratic Party here, mm-hmm. right? We're trying to have them take a real look at the data, the analysis, and the messaging that is going to build the necessary coalition and the necessary enthusiasm to t- win in 2018, and I would love nothing more than to move past this silly conversation as we move into the fall so that we can keep our eyes on the prize. I think that you hit on a very important point here. It's one of the things that we've heard from you know either our listeners or people we know in our lives about this is no one went out and said, well, we're going to support pro-gun candidates or anti-immigration candidates or whatever else, and that like you got like your organization and some other people have a very understandable right to be angry that this was the one issue that was singled out. I was curious if, you know, in my experience, does it really matter who the chair of the DCCC is because Nancy Pelosi runs the DCCC um, as the leaders tend to do? Have you heard anything from Leader Pelosi or the DCCC to try to 
contextualize these remarks or put it in context in a way that makes you feel more comfortable where this is going? I mean, we're in constant conversation with all of leadership, and I, you know, I think that they appreciate not just that we have a job to do, but that we bring significant power to the table. I mean, we are. I mean, we are one of the largest membership organizations. We're actively growing. We mobilize really hard for the candidates that stand for our values. And, and I, you know, I do hear appreciation on that. Um, I think that they are, they are working to understand the concerns and get it right. And I think the sooner we can do that, uh, the more unity we'll have in terms of winning in 2018. Back to the when when candidates and and the D trip and people like that get this question from reporters, you know they're they're all going to keep get some version of the question. Okay, should there be a litmus test um, for candidates on abortion? What other litmus test should there be? Should there be a litmus test on single payer? Should there be a litmus test on gun rights? Right? Does it seem like the right answer here is to say, look? If you want to know what the Democratic Party stands for, look at the Democratic Party platform, right? We are unequivocally pro-choice. We believe in common sense, right? Like, and you just sort of go through the, the platform itself and then say, that's what we're hoping for. That's what we're fighting for. That's what we hope that all of our candidates uh, who were running that's in 2018. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think you just talked yourself into being the chair of the DCCC, John. <laughs> God, um, yeah. That was a great answer. <laughs> way way easier being a podcast host. the other answer is, look, even... Those who are sort of not totally with us um, within the caucus are moving in that direction. Right. Right. There is unanimity on not defunding Planned Parenthood. There was unanimity among the Democratic caucus on full-scale reproductive health services, including abortion, for victims of sex, sex trafficking. The, the country is actually moving in the direction of of supporting the Democratic position on this. And what we don't want is the Democrats to move in the opposite direction of the country at a time where this issue is victory for us. It does seem like a very old debate, right? I mean, I I saw that even majority PAC polling had 56% of white working class voters pro-choice and another 22% are more pro-choice than not. Only 33, 34% were were pro-life. So, and you've you've pointed this out. It's not like this is is an issue dividing the party or even really dividing America. Like the vast majority of voters are pro-choice. The consensus is clear on this. And guess what? Any person who's out there who's voting solely to restrict women from accessing abortion is never going to vote Democratic for two reasons. One, they've always got a better choice on the GOP side of the ballot. And two, they don't agree with us on most anything else because really strict anti-abortion adherents aren't about abortion at all. They would join hands with us and fight for contraception and the kinds of policies that support working moms if they were, but they don't do any of that, right? It's a clash of ideological worldviews, and the extreme right, you're never going to win on this issue. They have their own candidates. And just so our listeners understand what the stakes are in this debate, how badly are pro-choice policies under attack today in this country? Really bad. I mean, I think this election was a wake-up call because you had the misogynist-in-chief joining forces with one of the most extreme anti-choice politicians we've ever seen, Mike Pence. Um, but abortion access specifically, I'm from Texas, which is ground zero for these fights, is so, so difficult, particularly if you're not economically well off, that a totally independent researcher who was 
diving deep in Google Analytics, came up with the conclusion, it was actually an ancillary conclusion, his primary conclusion that was that America is more racist than we like to admit based on Google searches. But his ancillary conclusion is that we are living in the middle of a crisis of self-induced abortion. And the scorched earth approach by the extreme anti-choice movement, who's been very effective in electing their own people to state houses in Congress, has led to things like happened under Mike Pence, where he closed women's reproductive health care clinics across the state, and what did we see? We didn't see the number of abortions go down. We did see the number of self-induced abortions go up. We also saw a spike in HIV, such that it was like a pandemic in parts of the state, and we also saw women able to access less prenatal care. Therefore, birth outcomes and, and maternal outcomes went down. This is not about abortion. It's just not about abortion. Like you said, that's an old debate, and we can't be fooled by what this extreme minority's real agenda is in thinking that we're going to negotiate with them to some kind of common agreement. We don't need to. We are the majority. We have consensus, and we don't actually stand for anything they stand for. Okay. Good to keep in mind as we look ahead to 2018 and 2020. Elise Hogue, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, John and Dan. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Don't go anywhere. This is Pod Save America, and there's more on the way. Ask Sherwin-Williams during the March Spring Sale, March 15th through the 25th, and get 35% off paints and stains with prices starting at $28.92. That means 35% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And, of course, get 35% off all of our other colors. Stop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. With us, the host of Crooked Media's with friends like these, Anna Marie Cox. Anna. How you feeling as we uh, as you read as you read the news this week? <laughs> oh God! I mean, you know, we already have the Trump-adjusted terms I kind of idea, that. but this is the bar is getting lower and lower, right? To be okay in Trump-adjusted terms, like I'm not currently under my desk. There, yeah. how's that? That's like I haven't actually been practicing duck and cover. Have I looked at buying pre-put together go bags? <laughs> I have. I have done that. <laughs> we were just talking about that. We were talking about Crooked Media branded survival kits. We, um, I would, sure. <laughs> that that you should tell Crooked Media one the fine and Trump adjusted terms go back. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I am panicking in Trump adjusted terms. So we were talking about North Korea. We talked about sort of the uh, the MAGA media response to all this. I want to talk to you about there's a poll that was referenced in the Washington Post today. 
done by two political scientists. They basically got 650 people who identify or lean as Republicans, asked them a bunch of questions. Here are the startling results. 47% believe Trump won the popular vote. 68% said millions of illegal immigrants voted. 73% said that voter fraud happens somewhat or very often. And 52% said that they would support a Trump suggestion to postpone the 2020 election until the country can make sure that only eligible citizens can vote. John, I think it's really cute that you still find this startling. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I mean, yeah, let's what is the the term of art these days shocked but not surprised? Yeah. I have a couple thoughts about this. One is that yes, it's it's startling to hear, but another thing is that we polls like this really raise a question about like what should people be polling? Yeah, I thought you know? so. Um, cause I, I had the feeling, and I don't know if you guys share this or not, but every time someone in the, did in, a, in the field, a poll about Obama being a U.S. citizen, they were making the problem worse. Right. Uh, because they were giving people, people didn't even know that was an option, right? There was like yeah. some group of people out there probably that hadn't even heard birther conspiracies, but had bad feelings about Obama. So if you ask them, is he a, American citizen or not? They're like, oh, wow, I guess I didn't realize that he, there was a conspiracy theory I could be buying into. You know? Yeah. The, the political nerd term for this is uh, push polling. Right. Well, there's also there's like more aggressive push polling, but this is like a kind of like subtle, more subtle push polling. And right. I think with this postponing the election thing, you probably are running into some group of people who didn't even realize that was an option. You know, right. like haven't even been thinking in those terms, but now you've given them the opportunity to accept Trump as a, you know, authoritarian, more literally. And so, of course, they embrace it. Um, And in the other news, it's sort of like, you know, Trump voters are going to Trump, right? I mean, yeah, like that's we're seeing those headlines all the time. Um, At some point, we'll be we'll stop running them, I guess. And, Uh, And not just and it's not just about Trump, too. It's about Republican voters in general and and partisanship. That, yes. you know, these voters are just um, that, that, that people, when they respond to some of these polls, they just there's a, there's a knee jerk partisanship that, you know, causes them to answer one way or another. And I know that I have talked about this on, on the show before, but it's always worth it bears repeating. But, you know, social science tells us that this tribalism is how people come to develop beliefs. It's they pick a tribe first. And then they accept the, the the beliefs of that tribe. So, of course, you know, people are going to say that Trump won the popular vote because that's like the Republican position on some level. Right. Not officially, not establishment Republicans, not certain sane Senate Republicans. But there is this sense. Actually, I, I'll ask you guys this. Are you getting the same sense that I am that the Republican Party is just moving to back Trump? Like there's like the Senate Republicans are kind of high and dry in a way. And the party establishment, like the actual RNC and rank and file voters, aren't really leaving him, right? Aren't really leaving him? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's tough. I've seen like conflicting polls and some polls it shows like that there may be some base erosion. Uh, I saw that there's a poll in New Hampshire the other day that had Kasich versus Trump in a 2020 primary and had Kasich at 52 and Trump at 40. But then there was another New Hampshire poll where, you know, more than most Republicans were still supportive of Trump, even though he's sitting at 36 percent approval overall in the state. 
Well, I mean, I guess part of it is that people who still call themselves Republican are going to support Trump. I mean, I think that's yeah. one of the things that's happening, right? Is that people like my husband, for example, who considered himself a Republican until <laughs> last summer, uh, Trump was a reason he no longer calls himself a Republican, right? Yeah. But people who still do, like his parents, <laughs> are just getting further and further into that alternate reality, which is being fortified by an alternate you know, media universe that tells them this this exact story that the poll, you know, kind of bears out. And that is only getting worse. There's a story this week that uh, Sinclair Broadcast Group, which is another MAGA media outlet, um, plans to buy 42 local stations from Tribune Media, which will allow it to reach 72% of U.S. households. We've known this for a while, but the news was that is double, that is double the legal cap of 39%. And the reason they can go over that cap is thanks to the approval from the FCC chairman that Trump elevated this year. This, this to me, is the story kind of flies under the radar. You see it pop up every once in a while. I know uh, John Oliver did a piece on it. We read about various developments. But um, Sinclair reaching 72% of the U.S. population, U.S. households, uh, through local television mm-hmm. news, which is the kind of news that people might not think is ideological one way or the other they just expect to get their local news what's going on and so to like subtly have that be conservative um or not even conservative no, not, but yeah, supporting I would Trump, not conservative yeah, like not dis- conservative but it's but, and it's disinformation too like yes, it's like they are yeah. actively lying to people <laughs> yeah i mean and i don't i don't mean that i'm not exaggerating right um They've been shown this Sinclair Media when they send out these pre-put together packages for their local news stations to show like their, you know, propaganda for the Trump administration. And they are not, you know, representative of reality. John Oliver did did do this whole thing about them. And what's really uh, sneaky is something you mentioned, which is that it's not like choosing this alternate reality. Like the people who watch Fox News, you know, they've chosen to get their information from what they already know to be a somewhat, they might not think it's, they might think it's still reality, but they know it's conservative, right? They made that choice with Sinclair. Like people aren't making the choice to get their information from a conservative biased point of view. They're just think they're turning on the local news, like you said, and, and they see Boris Epstein, um, who, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I can just laugh at Boris Epstein. That's all I can do. (laughs) I, look, I think this is, I mean, this is very alarming. On all, like in a short term view, it's very alarming that people are going to be ex- unknowingly, as you put it, point out, will be exposed to what is essentially state sponsored propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's alarming. It also, to me, suggests part of a, a longer term trend that sort of the way in which we think, have thought about journalism for a long time is sort of coming to an end and that. It, the idea that it's all independent arbiters of facts and news is, you know, we're sort of like going back to the old days of, you know, like the Hearsts and like partisan broadsheet newspapers and pamphlets where every everything has some sort of – the exception to the rule will be the way the New York Times, the Washington Post are now. And most everything else will be a place where people gather for – Ideals for news from it'll be like tribal newsletters, basically, to try to torture the tribal the tribe metaphor. The, but the question is, will they be overt or will they be subtle? 
you know, where they or not even subtle, but will they try to lie to people and say that it's objective and really it's a bunch of propaganda, which seems far more insidious. Right. And because yeah, I think I, that's right. I, I think that's insidious and different because it means that people aren't making the choice, right? I mean, yeah. that's people at least when they choose right wing media outlets today, like they know they're rejecting something. <laughs> right. They you can you can art you can actually get them to to admit they're rejecting another worldview, right? Um, they may not think that worldview is valid, but they're acknowledging like that it exists. Whereas if it's a more subtle, you're already soaking in it kind of thing. I think it's harder to even find a point of entry for a conversation or, or a debate. It's not great, guys. It's not great. Um, <laughs> Podcasts, though, man, those are going to be. Oh, and texture. Texture is also a really good thing to for magazines. <laughs> Look at that. Um, <laughs> Who knows? They might. They, they, I don't even know if they paid for an ad in this episode, but they're getting a little shout out. Uh, Anna, who what do a you, waste. Who do, you, who do you have on? Uh, who do you have on the show this week? I have on. Um, well, we're going to. We're talking in these in these trying times. It, it may not seem like a super super you know urgent. Uh, thing, but we're talking about pop culture and racism. I'm t- going to be talking to the woman that wrote the big New York Magazine story about toxic young adult novel Twitter and the kind of calling out and dragging that happens over insufficient wokeness, uh-huh. uh, which is interest of interest to me. Um, insufficient wokeness is uh, a, a definite thread in the with friends like these catalog. And then I get to talk to someone who I really trust on those matters which is ira madison the third who i think you guys know as well we love ira hey it's love it here that young i'm here i just if it's 10 i'm here <laughs> okay it's <laughs> uh, a reminder guys we got to finish our work before 10 <laughs> i mean i'm here so i'm gonna talk but uh that article was fascinating and so i'm excited about that conversation that's all i wanted to chime in and say it's wonderful one other point oh here we <laughs> yeah. go the local news thing it's not just boris epstein they also choose what we cover. Local news has always right. been conservative in mm. a lot of ways. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. But uh, crime, car well, crashes, disaster. Was, well, what are they going to cover? Are they going to cover raids against children being deported, or are they going to cover crimes by undocumented people? Right. right? So, right. Yep. and that's already happening, and that'll get worse. Can that's I actually I make a, a larger point on this too? Which is that one thing that happens when you have the seventy-two uh, percent of the stations of uh, uh, households reached by these people. They also homogenize the news, too, right? And they nationalize everything. Yeah. And that can mean that people have an experience in their own backyards that they they think is out of step with the rest of the world. Um, and f- they think that maybe maybe it's just them. Things are ha- bad in their their hometown. But but, hey, it looks like things are happening are great elsewhere. And it creates like this dis- dissonance and resentment that I think just feeds something like the Trump phenomenon. So. It's bad. Are we all agreeing it's bad? It's We're, bad. We don't like it. We're not happy about it. Um, <laughs> all right, guys. I think that's everything for today. I think we covered it all. Is there all anything right. you want to ask me? All very cheery. <laughs> Hi, Dan. Dan is going to be John. a guest. We, are, um, we, t- we did it. it. We did it. We <laughs> well, did it. Well, I wanted to talk about it. Yeah, well. Well, now it's an outro. The music's going. <laughs> Here we go. So it's fine. All right. Bye, guys. Uh, bye. I'll talk bye. to you next Thank week. Thank you to Elise Hogue for joining us. Thanks to Anna Marie Cox, Dan Pfeiffer, John Lovett for coming, and the whole family's here. <laughs> We'll see you guys later. If if we don't die, we'll talk to you next week. And I'll see you tomorrow, Dan. (laughs) If we don't die. If we don't die. (laughs) Okay. See you later, everyone. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Ask Sherwin-Williams during the March Spring Sale, March 15th through the 25th, and get 35% off paints and stains with prices starting at $28.92. 
That means 35% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 35% off all of our other colors. Stop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.